You'd think that a microphone and a speaker were two different or even opposite things since you speak into a microphone and then the sound comes out of a speaker. In fact, they're practically identical. Both are transducers. It's just a matter of which way the signal flows. If you want to test that out sometime, take a pair of headphones and plug them into a microphone jack and then talk into them. They'll actually work just like a microphone. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music that is recorded into microphones, music that is played out through speakers, and sometimes, probably, music that is recorded on speakers that are doubling as microphones. I've got a whole bunch of your questions to go through on this episode, and I am excited to get down to business. So pull up a chair, turn up the volume, and enjoy the show. There are still a lot of things to do with the signals and the physics of microphones and speakers that elude me. I like that microphones work. I like that speakers sound good, but I'm no electrical engineer. Still, I find that kind of thing fascinating. And you never know, there could come a time where in a pinch, I use a pair of headphones to record something because I forgot my microphone or it broke. So welcome back to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you're listening. This episode was actually not planned to be a Q&A episode, but I'm doing one for really one big reason, and that is that I live in Portland, Oregon, and the entire state is on fire. The entire like west coast of America is suffering from this huge explosion of wildfires right now. It's really scary and bad here. And while I haven't had to evacuate my home, I definitely have friends who have had to evacuate. Where I am is relatively safe seeming for now. There's smoke everywhere. The city of Portland is just covered in smoke, and we've done our best to kind of keep the smoke out of our house, but it's still getting in. It's not just unpleasant. It feels really kind of unsafe. There's not a whole lot you can do, but it's not really great circumstances for recording, and so I'm kind of recording in bits and bobs here, answering your questions because there's a whole bunch of them to go through, and also because it's really isolating feeling here right now. I mean, it was already isolating because of COVID, and now you cannot go outside. It is not safe to be outside breathing the air. So we're just trapped in our house in this kind of shroud of smoke. And I just kind of want to feel connected to all of you right now. So I have all these great questions from all the lovely listeners of Strong Songs, and I'm going to go through them, and I'm just going to answer some of your music questions. So sorry to be kind of grim and real. I don't usually talk about whatever's happening in the world while I make this show. I want these episodes to stand the test of time, but this one is its kind of hard not to talk about it because it's everywhere and it's very much affecting everything about my life. So here we are. And if there's one thing that I've learned from this year, it's that music and community are the most important things. And making a Q&A episode of Strong Songs combines those two things in a way that I am actually finding very helpful. So I don't know what the future holds. It may be that the next episode is also a Q&A. I am totally open to more questions. I have a ton to go through. Some of the questions I'm answering on this episode are actually from like a year ago. So I do hang on to all of your questions and just try to pick ones that go well together. Feel free to send me more questions, though, because I may do another Q&A next, depending on where things are at. You can always email them to me at listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. You can also send me questions on social media. I am on Twitter at Kirk, K-I-R-K Hamilton, and on Instagram at Kirk underscore Hamilton. Last thing, as I'm recording this, Strong Songs has passed 1,000 patrons on Patreon, which is really incredible. Thank you so much to everyone who's been a patron of this show. It's just 
I don't know. I it, it's it's hard to articulate how cool it is that I get to make this show and just have all of you support me making it in this way. I worked in media for a long time before I went independent and started making this show. And there's just nothing better than knowing that the audience is the only thing that matters and that all of you who like the show are the thing that make it possible for me to make the show. And that's it. There's no management. There's no people above me. There's no one who's going to pull the plug on the show or make me do one thing or another thing or add ads or start endorsing things I don't want to endorse. It's just me and you. And that is really cool. All right, let's get into your questions. First question comes from Jordan, who asks, can you explain timbre? And sure, I can totally explain timbre. So timbre is a property that any sound has. Every sound has a timbre, just like every sound has a pitch and a duration. They're just sort of these parameters you can apply to any sound, and timbre is one of them. So pitch is the one that everyone talks about all the time, right? Like if I sing an A and a C, ba, that's an A, and that's a C. Okay, so the pitch was the note. So when I say it's an A and a C, you can be more specific. You can like designate the octave that those are in. That's the pitch. That's the frequency at which the note is vibrating. However, I can sing those same notes without the pitch changing with a different timbre. If I go versus those are the same pitches, but they're very timbrely different. Same, you know, woodwind instruments use all kinds of timbres because you can control you with your breath. You know, you can control the sound in all these different ways. Every instrument has a lot of timbral options at any given time, and timbre is separate from pitch. So you can, you know, play different pitches at different timbres. It's just sort of one more modifier that a musician can apply to the sound of their instrument. Sarah writes, I've been listening to Pink Floyd for as long as I can remember. Like most Pink Floyd fans, I've generally kept to the non-Sid Barrett part of their discography. I recently started listening more to their debut album, and the song Flaming just intrigues me. It's musically weird to say the least, but somewhat simple too. Could you please break down the chord progression and intervals in the melody, especially the I can you part of each verse? Sarah guesses that this is in some way a minor second, and she's right about that. So let's just listen to that part of the chorus. This is a pretty weird Pink Floyd song, but it's a cool one. And uh, let's listen to the part that Sarah is asking about. Alone in the clouds So it's really all a pretty straightforward melody right up until the very end of the phrase, as Sarah mentions when he sings, I can you. They're moving through pretty standard chord progression here. And then... There's that flat two that Sarah's hearing. So that's actually kind of a fairly common trick, is throwing a flat two like that in there. This song is in the key of E, and it's moving through some pretty familiar chords for most of the melody. It's kind of a strangely phrased melody, but it's not too weird harmonically. And then just at the very, very end of the phrase, they go to a D, which is the flat seventh, then an F, then an E. So that's flat seven, flat two, one, D, F, E. And that flat two, it's an unusual sound, you know, it's that kind of Phrygian sound, the Phrygian mode of major, which has a flat two in it, and it's just a bit of a, like, trippy, weird sound. You'll hear it in kind of psychedelic music when the songwriters are going for this sort of a sound, and what I like about this use here is it's just a reminder that you don't have to, like, go from five to one or four to one. You don't have to resolve in any certain way. You can just be like, yeah, we're going to play a flat two here, and it'll sound pretty cool. Too much, I won't touch you, but then 
Nicole writes, I love the classic Stranglers song, Golden Brown. It's clearly in some sort of waltz 3-4 time signature, but other things are going on that I would love explained. Uh, sure, I would be happy to explain this. This is a really cool song. It's been in the public consciousness for a few reasons. It was featured in the Netflix show The Umbrella Academy, and also the keyboard player and founding member of the Stranglers, Dave Greenfield, tragically died in May. So the song has a lot of cool stuff going on. Let's just listen to a little bit of it, and then we'll pick apart what's going on musically. All right, actually, so before we get into the meat of the song, this intro is where the business is happening. This is where the unusual thing is. This song is mostly in three. You're correct. So one, two, three, one, two, three. And then every, I guess it's the fourth bar of the phrase, is a bar of four just during this intro. So the majority of the song is actually just in 3-4, but during the intro, they add that bar of 4. So let me start it at the beginning again, and I'll count along with a couple of phrases just to count out that bar of 4 so that you can hear it. So... One two three one two three one two three one two three four one two three one two three one two three one two three four And then from here into the verse it's just in three Golden brown texture like sun So just one two three one two three one two three one two three throughout the night No need to fight never a frown So in terms of the counting, that's really it. They just sneak in that bar of four to keep you kind of off balance. The other cool thing about this song is that it's played on harpsichord. It's slightly out of tune, like it's kind of a little flat for E and a little sharp for E flat. And I think that's just the tuning of the harpsichord because you don't actually hear a real harpsichord in that many songs. It's such a distinctive sound. It's also kind of timeless. I think it's partly because that sort of sound and the harpsichord became popular, especially in the early 2000s, like in film scores. So you would hear music that sounds like this, but it's pretty cool that this song, which is almost 40 years old, achieves a modern or even timeless sound through the use of an instrument that is hundreds of years old. Goes to show, music moves in cycles. Our next question comes from John, who writes, This is kind of the inverse of the supergroups question you got on the last Q&A. What is your opinion of tracks where the artists recorded every single instrument themselves? My friend is incredibly impressed by Prince, for instance, or Stevie Wonder being able to record everything on a track, all the instruments. It's impressive, of course, but my opinion is something will be missing. Nobody can be truly great at all those instruments, plus there's always going to be more richness with a set of musicians and their own unique styles and feels. So yeah, I have kind of a mixed answer to this, I guess. I love artists who record everything themselves. I love Prince. I love D'Angelo. He's a great, more recent artist who plays like everything on his records. And um, Stevie Wonder is another really good example. And so for starters, those artists don't always play everything. I mean, Stevie Wonder had a great band. He has regular musicians who play with him. Prince, same deal. D'Angelo, same deal. There are always other musicians on those on those albums. It's just that the main songwriter also sometimes records 
records everything themselves. And I think that can give you a clarity of vision. I play a whole bunch of instruments and do a lot of multi-track recording myself, and it's really helpful for writing. And there are times where, even though I'm not as good at guitar as I am at saxophone, I'm not as good at drums as I am at guitar, I can, you know, do something my own way and find my own sound with it. And then the music kind of takes on more of an identity because I took the time to record all the parts. So then if I do give the music to other musicians, there's kind of more, I have more of a sense of it. I have a better sense of it just as a songwriter. So I think it's useful in that way. And I do like listening to people who play every instrument. Now, as to like whether a musician can be good enough at all those instruments, you would think that no, you know, most people are like me. They started on one instrument and they're kind of better at that instrument than other instruments. But there are people out there like, say, Jacob Collier, who can play basically every instrument that exists as well as someone for whom that's their main instrument. At least I, that seems to be true of bass, drums, keyboards, and vocals and guitar for him. I mean, his first album, In My Rooms, is from a few years ago. He recorded every single track on this album, and it sounds completely ridiculous. I woke up today like I wanted Since you walked my way from my strength to That's one person playing all of those parts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's a lot of chops, especially on that first record of his. He was pretty young. I think he was kind of proving something with that album, which he certainly proved that he is an incredible musician. But there are even times on that album, like on the second track, he'll play a piano solo and it's really pretty sensitive and it's interesting. It sounds like he is, like he's made a band, a band that's listening to one another, even though he's overdubbed the tracks himself. ways Jacob Collier is like the er example of this thing. I wouldn't call it a shtick, but it's kind of his thing. I mean, he can play these instruments so incredibly well that that's kind of one of the main things that he's known for. Of course, he also records with other artists. He actually has a lot of singers come and sing with him on his more recent albums, which is nice because it just adds a different voice and it gives a different sound to the music. So, John, to your question, uh, I guess I like both. I like musicians who can play all the instruments. I think there's a lot of value in that as a songwriter. It's certainly fun to watch somebody play a bunch of instruments really impressively, but of course, like you said, it's totally true that there's something else, there's something different that happens when people make music together. I grew up learning jazz, and that's what jazz is all about. Playing jazz by yourself, it's just not really the point of the music. The music is interactive. You play it with other people. You can play jazz songs by yourself, you can improvise solo, but it's just not really the same when you don't have somebody to bounce off of. You don't have that conversation. It's a soliloquy. It's not a dialogue. So yeah, that's my answer. My opinion is I like both. I think there's value in both. And I do think that it's valuable for musicians to try to learn a bunch of different instruments and not overly specialize just because each new instrument that I learn teaches me a lot about the instruments that I already play. And I get a lot of value out of that. 
One last artist that I should mention on this topic is the drummer Nate Wood, who I shouldn't call him a drummer because he plays bass and synths and sings. He's known for playing bass and drums at the same time, and he's an incredible drummer. I mean, his feel is really wild. He plays with the group Kneebody, which is a really cool kind of prog jazz group, and he also has a solo project called Four that is, there's all this stuff on YouTube that you can watch where it's him sitting in a recording room playing drums and bass and synths and singing all at the same time, and he doesn't do any overdubbing or looping or anything he's just doing it all at the same time it's totally incredible and really worth checking out i'll put a link to some of that in the show notes and you can hear him here too next question comes from Suzanne, who writes, I would love to hear your thoughts on whether theme music can make or break a TV show. We've been watching Peaky Blinders, and their brilliant use of the Nick Cave track totally sets up the tonality of the show. It's a good show, but the music makes it spectacular. In that same way that Toss a Coin to Your Witcher made that show, Game of Thrones is another excellent example. Are there any TV shows that you think were saved or elevated by their title music? Do you think the new opportunity to skip the intro will kill that? So, yeah, I definitely think that this is true. I mean, any good theme song should elevate its show and really set the mood. Um, I can think of a few examples of this. Like, I, you'll always see people saying only a maniac would skip the intro on, like, Stranger Things, for example. People really love the opening credits music to Stranger Things. It's also nice and short, so you never really need to skip it because you want to hear those lovely synthesizers at the beginning of that of that show. Love those sweet filters. So, you know, I love a lot of TV theme music. I want to do another episode on theme music, and I think I might actually do uh, themes from HBO shows. And when I do, I will definitely talk about this one, because there is one that, Suzanne, your question kind of makes me think of, for a show that I didn't love at first, and it took me kind of a while to get vibrating at this show's frequency, and the music was actually the thing that got me there. I didn't love the show at first, but I loved the music from the first time I heard it. Yes, Nicholas Bretel's theme music from Succession was actually the thing that let me in on this show, which I now totally love. I think the music is really the heart of the show. It captures that dark, grandiose humor that this show does so well. So I'll spare you any analysis of that song just because I want to save it. I do think I'm going to do an episode on HBO theme songs at some point because there are so many theme songs with great music. Suzanne, you mentioned Game of Thrones. Of course, Ramin Jawadi's music from that show is really amazing. And there's a lot of other shows that I would love to talk about. So that'll come at some point down the road. But for now, yes, totally. I agree that a theme song for a TV show can totally make a show. It can elevate a show. And as with me in succession, it can be the path that a person uses to get into understanding what a show is all about. Our next question isn't really a question. It comes from listener Cam, who wrote in just to kind of share a cool observation about music and animation that I wanted to share with all of you. Cam writes, I continue to enjoy your show. I went to art school majoring in 3D animation, though for a long while I thought I might desire a career writing music for cartoons, video games, movies, and shows. So many animators and other visual artists grew up watching Warner Brothers cartoons every Saturday morning, and so many of our sensibilities come from early exposure to the marriage between music and motion. The intersection of the discipline 
disciplines and philosophies of music and animation is a popular topic amongst animators. At work, when trying to verbally convey the timing of a shot or a sequence of shots, we often reduce it to a sort of percussion solo, a Carl Stalling-esque musical cue or an Edgar Wright David Fincher film sequence of insert shots with accompanying sound effects. Musicians like Carl Stalling, Scott Bradley, and Milt Franklin have left an indelible mark on the history of music and animation, and are a huge part of how and why I and many others chased careers in animation. That was music by the great Warner Brothers composer Carl Stalling, a legend of animation composition. So I really liked Cam's email just because it's sort of one more of these cross-media analyses that I like so much. We've talked about architects and visual artists and now animators, and I think there's a musical component to so many other kinds of art because, as I've mentioned before, I kind of think of music as one of the fundamental art forms, and there's music in almost everything. One of the fascinating things about animation is that when you're animating something, you have total control over everything. Like in film, there's a set and there's the light and you're filming the world with the camera and there are actors doing what actors do. In animation, you control everything so you can so finely control the rhythm of any given scene. Not just the editing, which of course is very, very rhythmic. You know, Cam mentions Edgar Wright. He has a great sense of editing. His editor, Chris Dickens, who did like Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead, he's an incredible editor. What's the matter, Danny? You never taken a shortcut before. And yeah, editing is all about timing, and timing is really just another way of saying rhythm. With animation, of course you have control over the editing, but you also have control over the movement of the actors. You can control the rhythms of every single movement in the frame, so rhythm becomes such an important part of what you're doing, I and mean, you can like fine control everything. So it's really cool to think about animators talking in terms of music and thinking in terms of musical phrases, describing things in terms of drum solo, so that totally makes sense. Thanks, Cam, for sending that in. Next question comes from William who asks, have you ever had the experience of a song recontextualizing itself such that you hear it completely differently or came away with a totally different feeling from the first time that you heard it? Um, I've definitely had this happen a lot of times. One particular one comes to mind. It is playing in the background right now. It's a 1994 They Might Be Giant song from their album John Henry, and it's called The End of the Tour. Over now, I can see myself at the end of the tour when the road disappears. If there's any more people around when the tour runs aground, and if you're still around, then we meet at the end of the tour. Now, they might be giants, typically comes off as a kind of whimsical, playful band, but a lot of times their songs are actually kind of dark, and this one is no exception. I didn't realize that the first many times I listened to this until I really sat down and listened to the lyrics, but this is a song about death, and it features this car crash where a lot of people are killed. There's a moment coming up where they sort of reflect on this car and the people in this car who are now gone, and the fact that they're gone, and you have to just let them go. This was the vehicle, these were the people You opened the door and expelled all the people This was the vehicle, these were the people You opened the door and expelled all the people This was the vehicle, these were the people You let them go 
So that song really kind of messes me up now whenever I hear it. And that was not the case for a long time. It was only when I kind of realized what it was about that it recontextualized for me. So that's just one example. Um, there are a lot of other songs that I could probably list, but that's one that comes to mind. One other that I'll mention is actually ABBA's Dancing Queen. I made an episode about that song early in year one, pretty early on in the run of Strong Songs. And I didn't really realize what those lyrics were and what they would mean to me when I started making that episode. And it turns out I actually found them to be really beautiful and moving. And I kind of came to that over the process of making that episode, analyzing the perspectives of who was speaking and what that might mean. I'd always thought of that song as a sort of a bittersweet song, but never thought about why. And that was a really wonderful process, just sort of that process of realization, of really sitting down with it. So that's another example. Music, it has layers. Next question comes from James, who asks, I have a Q&A question for you that I've spent a fair amount of pub time debating, but I don't have the musical chops to definitively resolve it. I am sure that you're the man that can help me out. The question is, is All Summer Long by Kid Rock based on Sweet Home Alabama by Leonard Skinner, as everyone else thinks, or is it Werewolves of London by Warren Zevon, as I think? Well, this will be the second Sweet Home Alabama-related dispute that I attempt to mediate in as many Q&A episodes, so let's listen to the Kid Rock song in question. Okay, I'm actually going to stop Kid right there. I actually figured I could answer this question in a very straightforward way until I listen to a little bit more of the song. But just based off of that intro, it's actually extremely clear whether this Kid Rock song is aping Sweet Home Alabama or Werewolves in London. So just for starters, all three of the songs in question, the Kid Rock song, the Warren Zevon song, and the Leonard Skinner song, all revolve around the same three chords, D, C, and G. They all have a similar groove, and they all kind of move from five to four to one, or depending on how you hear it, from one to flat seven to four. So if you know those two songs, you probably already can tell what I'm going to say based on that intro, what the Kid Rock song sounds more like. But let's just listen to them just so we can hear how the two songs move through those three chords. First, here's Sweet Home Alabama by Leonard Skinner. So it's all driven by that guitar riff that moves through that chord progression from the D to the C to the G. Okay, now here's Werewolves of London by Warren Zevon. So same three chords, pretty similar tempo, similar kind of groove going from a D to a C to a G, but this one is driven by a piano riff that is just a little bit different than the Leonard Skinner riff, so it makes the song sound pretty different. Okay, so now with those two in your ears, let's listen to the Kid Rock song. (laughs) 
So just based on that piano part, the answer is pretty clearly Werewolves of London. This song is taking the piano part from Warren Zevon's Werewolves of London and using it in an identical way. I mean, it is the piano part from Werewolves of London. I say that because it's not just moving through the chords, which would sound like this. It's all about the top voice in the piano part, which actually starts up on the B in that on that D chord, which is the sixth, and kind of walks down, where on its own, just the top part of the piano sounds like this. And then you combine that with the second voice, and you get this. And that's the Werewolves of London piano part. I mean, it's a distinct part. It's not just a chord progression. So that seems very straightforward to me. That is definitely a clear influence. I'm assuming there's some sort of co-songwriting credit and that some percentage of the royalties go to Warren Zevon's estate. However, it's not actually that clear cut because here's the thing, James, you're right. This song is definitely taking that piano part from Werewolves of London but it's also borrowing from Sweet Home Alabama. I kept listening to the song, and a little bit later during the pre-chorus, these backup vocalists come in, and they sing a part that sounds like this. Now, if you know Sweet Home Alabama, you probably heard those backup vocals and thought, wait a minute, this sounds just like Sweet Home Alabama now. And you're not wrong. I mean, listen to the backup vocals during the guitar solo on Sweet Home Alabama. So those backup vocals and some of the way that the guitars are playing during that pre-chorus on the Kid Rock song, also a very clear homage to Sweet Home Alabama. And again, homage is probably the wrong word. I mean, it's a D to a C to a B. And I mean, the singers don't sing the word Alabama, but it's sung the exact same way as on Sweet Home Alabama. In fact, and this might also be true of the piano part, this could just be a sample. Like, they might have just taken the actual stem from the original recordings and used them in this new song. So the answer, James, I'm afraid, is that you and your friends are both right. Because this song is a mashup of those two songs, which both have the same chord progression. It takes the piano part from Werewolves of London and some of the guitar action and more more noticeably the backup vocals from Sweet Home Alabama, mashes them together into a new-ish song, and then Kid Rock just kind of sings some stuff over it, but it's clear meant to just be this mashup homage to two great 1970s rock songs. And of course, after I released this episode, I went and listened to the entire song, and in the chorus, he makes the uh, Sweet Home Alabama thing a whole lot more explicit. So, sorry if that's not a satisfying answer, but at least the next time you and your friends are at the pub talking about this, you can explain to them why they're right and you're also right. And just to quickly confirm this, after I recorded this segment, I went and looked it up, and turns out, sure enough, this song does share a songwriting credit with both Leonard Skinner and Warren Zevon. A couple of side notes related to that. For starters, one of the backup vocalists on Sweet Home Alabama is the great Mary Clayton, an incredible singer. She sang lead and backup vocals on all kinds of recordings throughout the decades. She's probably best known for singing the second vocal part on the Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter, along with Mick Jagger, and just absolutely destroying that vocal part. Hey, 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 
you want to know more about Clayton and other great unsung singers of the 60s and 70s, you should definitely check out the documentary 20 Feet from Stardom. It's an incredible documentary. Can't recommend it enough. Last side note before we move on is that on the last Q&A episode, I answered a question about what key I thought Sweet Home Alabama was in, whether it's in the key of D or whether it's in the key of G. I've always kind of heard this song in the key of D, even though if you go by the key signature, it's like technically in the key of G, but it's always just sounded like D is the home base for this song. So that was my answer is I hear it in the key of D, even though there's totally a completely valid argument for it being in the key of G. That said, Listening to it since then, and listening to it even when I was just doing this comparison, I kind of hear it in G now, or at least I hear G a little bit more as one than I used to. So it just goes to show you can shift the way that you hear a song if you want to. And with a song like this that could kind of be heard either way, it's possible to go one way and then go the other way and, and sort of change your mind and change your ear. I'm sure that by the next Q&A episode, I'll be hearing it in the key of C. So <laughs> stay tuned for that. Guillaume writes, what is the instrument, if it is one, that is used in many old-school rap songs and sounds continuously with its melody going up and down? For example, You Know How We Do It by Ice Cube. Well, I was pretty sure I knew what instrument Guillaume was asking about before I listened to this, but let's listen to a clip from You Know How We Do It by Ice Cube and see if we can figure out what that instrument is. So yes, that is a classic sound, a staple on a lot of early 90s rap. Uh, Dr. Dre's The Chronic is just covered in this synth. Um, I usually see it called or think of it as the G-Funk lead, and it's one of the most iconic sounds in American music. A version of the G-Funk lead that I always think of is on Nothing But a G Thing from The Chronic, which is probably the most famous usage of this sound. It was the first time I heard it when I was a kid, and it sticks out. I mean, it just jumps out at you because it's so piercing and high-pitched. So there are variations on the sound. There are actually some differences in the sound between those two examples that I just played. The Ice Cube one is higher pitched, doesn't have that like lower octave oscillator going. But it's basically it's a synth lead. Dre is probably using a Moog. I don't have a Moog, but I'm just using a sort of a plug-in synthesizer because you can do this on almost any synthesizer. So it's kind of based around a saw wave. That's how it sounds to me. And you kind of make it high pitched, um, play up pretty high on the keyboard. The key to this sound though is the portamento setting or or glide, as it's called on some synthesizers. So remember, a synthesizer, it's an electronic instrument, and it starts by just creating a signal, known as an oscillator, that is one of several different shapes. When I say this is a saw wave, it's like a saw shape. If you looked at the sound wave, then you have a bunch of knobs and wheels and levers and whatever that let you adjust that signal. A lot of synthesizers also let you merge multiple oscillators. You kind of turn a knob to mix between them, and you can manipulate each of those oscillators separately to get a sound that's kind of a hybrid of several different oscillators. So the portamento function makes it so that when you go from one note to another note on the keyboard, the synth keeps going and slides between the two notes. Portamento comes from music notation, just like staccato or legato, and it means the same thing. Like a, a cello player will slide between two notes on the neck without stopping bowing. 
to get that kind of a sound, that's a portamento. So on a synthesizer, it's just a parameter that you can adjust. There's usually a knob, like a portamento knob, and you can turn that up or turn it all the way off, and that is the kind of defining sound of this lead, I think, is having a fair amount of portamento, so that the notes slide into one another, and there's never a hard attack on any of them. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Here's a synth that I got, kind of sounding like that G-Funk lead. This is the lead line from Nothing But A G Thing. Okay, now here's the same part, literally the same MIDI notes. I'm just gonna copy them over, but I'm gonna turn the portamento knob all the way off so that it's not on the sound. And this is what that sounds like. It's way harsher, right, for starters. It's just like having those harsh attacks on every note uh, removes the smoothness of the sound. And I think that the juxtaposition between, it's this very piercing high-pitched sound over a lot of sort of lower grooves and you know drum sounds and bass notes that cuts through, but because it has that really smooth lack of an attack and slides between notes, it gives it this nice sort of contrast with how piercing the tone is. If you remove the portamento and you get those harsh attacks on every note, first of all, the synth just sounds a lot less Remarkable. It sounds like it could be any synth, but it also just loses that contrast and loses all of its character. It's so much better with the portamento turned on. I have been getting more into synths lately. If you follow me on social media, you're probably aware of that. And man, synthesizers are a lot of fun and the portamento setting on a synthesizer is really cool. Like playing with that parameter really gives you a lot of expressive options with a synthesizer. And Dr. Dre and a lot of other hip hop producers from the early 90s certainly knew that. So hope that answers your question. Sam writes, I once had a conversation with a musician friend of mine, and while I can't remember the exact context, he mentioned his favorite piece of music, the Windows 95 logon music composed by Brian Eno. I was a little befuddled, but then he explained every time he would listen to it, he was astounded by how much sheer musicality Eno squeezed into a tiny five-second window. And going back, it truly is an impressive piece of work. So my question is, do you have any favorite songs that are extremely short? Maybe not full-on micro songs like the Windows 95 theme, but something really condensed like that. Sure, I have a lot of these. I love jingle writing and the whole idea of like micro songs and really short melodies. I could pick a whole bunch, but instead I just picked three. So the first one is maybe a bit of a cheat. It's a segment of the theme music from NPR's All Things Considered. This was composed by Don Vogeli, and this arrangement is by the trombone player Wyclef Gordon, who's a great jazz trombone player. And this stinger would always play when I was listening to NPR, so I kind of think of it as its own standalone piece of music, and I think it's an incredible just little riff. The way that it's arranged, the harmony, the horns, everything. It's really, really cool. You'll know what I'm talking about the minute you hear it. It's so hip, it's so cool, and what I love is that it ends on that unresolved chord. Over on the left, you'll hear the fourth. This is in the key of B, and it really sounds like it's going to a B chord, like it's going to go from the F sharp up to a B major. But it doesn't, it actually kind of resolves to this, I mean, it's like maybe a B sus over F sharp. It's some kind of pedally thing that just isn't resolved. It's the suspended chord. And there's that E over on the left that sounds like the suspended fourth in the key of B that gives it this really cool lifted unresolved quality that's really fitting for the beginning of a news show since presumably news is ongoing and you're kind of just getting started. So it's the second half of a phrase, but I think that it works as its own little micro composition just because it both resolves and doesn't resolve. 
My next pick is from a video game. It's a pick that probably won't surprise anyone who's followed my work for a long time. It is by the great Nobuo Uematsu, and it's from Final Fantasy VII. And it's the music that plays whenever you go to sleep in an inn. It's a little piece of music called Good Night Until Tomorrow. And a lot of video games, especially JRPGs, role-playing games, have these little musical cues that play when you sleep in an inn, you know, before the next day loads up. And I really like the one from Final Fantasy VII. I think it sounds great. There's a lot going on musically in just a short amount of time. Beautiful. So my third pick is probably just because I already have this band on the brain because they were in an answer to an earlier question, but also because I can't talk about microcompositions and short songs without talking about the kings of microcomposition, Johns Flansburg and Linnell, better known as They Might Be Giants. Now, They Might Be Giants has a long history of writing short songs from Dial a Song all the way through a bunch of their albums. My favorite and probably the most iconic example of this is at the end of their 1992 album, Apollo 18. They go into this run of very, very short songs like two, three, five second songs at the end of the album called Fingertips. And while it's hard to pick a favorite, I guess in the spirit of this question, I am going to pick a favorite. My favorite is, well, the title of the song is the only lyric in the song, so I'll just let them tell you. What's that blue thing doing here? My favorite thing about Fingertips is that each of these songs implies a bigger song. It sounds like a moment from a song that has already been recorded, but none of those songs actually exist. It's kind of the magic of Fingertips. And I love that about this song. I love every song in Fingertips. It's so freaking cool. They also will do it live, and I think that's really cool as well. I've actually seen some interpretations of Fingertips as being like charting the course of a person's life from birth through adolescence to adulthood and old age and then death and the afterlife. And that's cool and that's kind of fun to do, but I actually really like fingertips as this totally context-free journey through a bunch of different musical spaces just all over the world of music. So to me, that's what it'll always be. And if you haven't listened to fingertips, you really should. Really should listen to Apollo 18. It's incredible. They may be giants. is a great band. I'll probably do an episode about them one day. I don't understand you. I just don't understand you. I cannot understand you. I don't understand you. Aaron writes, maybe this isn't your specialty, but I thought I would check and ask. Last night, I went to a concert here in Portland at the Crystal Ballroom. Every time I go to that venue, I'm always shocked at how poor the acoustics are and how the band generally sounds bad. The music is just so loud and the melodies get washed out, if that makes sense. Do you know why certain venues sound the way that they sound? I know bands have sound checks before shows. Is there a difference between the sound check and then when there's people in the room? Or do some venues just sound awful and there's nothing that can fix it? Well, I actually have a lot of thoughts about this and experience just from playing a lot of live shows. I will say, for starters, Aaron's uh, email clearly came from a while ago. How nice to imagine going to a show to see someone play at the Crystal Ballroom for a number of reasons that's not possible in Portland right now. So yes, going to see live music and having bad sound, like bad acoustics in the room, is a huge problem. It's something that I see as this massive problem that... I don't know, at least for certain genres of music, it feels so endemic that it doesn't even feel like anyone's really trying to solve it. Now, for starters, the Crystal Ballroom, I've seen shows there, I actually saw the Wood Brothers play there, and they sounded great, because the Wood Brothers generally sound good. So some of this does come down to the band. Wood Brothers are total pros, they don't play, they play loud, but they don't play too loud, and the show sounded great. You could hear everything, it was really fun, it was like high volume and high energy, but everything was pretty clear, you could hear what they were singing, and it's partly the performances, it's 
probably the way they have their amps set, the way Jono Ricks, the drummer, is like a really sensitive, great drummer. So that was a band that sounds really, really good most of the time. I would guess that any Wood Brothers show that you went and saw, it would probably sound good. Now, a sound engineer can sabotage a band for sure, and usually the problem is mids and low mids in the EQ spectrum. So a room tends to get kind of boomy, and it's the bass and the bass drum and kind of the boom and the low kind of rumble that just gets so loud that it fills up the room, and you start to lose track of everything else. It makes it really hard to keep your bearings as a listener. One thing you ask Aaron, is there a difference between the sound check when there's nobody in the club and you go and set up and you check everything and make sure the levels are good and work with the sound? engineer, is there a difference between that and the club at night when everyone has shown up? Presumably you sold it out because you're playing in an amazing band, right? And uh, everyone's shown up with all their friends and they're there to see you and suddenly the sound isn't as good as it presumably was during soundcheck. That's a complicated answer, but yeah, the answer is there are a lot of differences between the soundcheck and the night of the show. Now, some of those will help you. Like people, their bodies just absorb sound. People are kind of soft and they absorb sound waves. If you think about how it sounds to yell to an empty room versus yelling to a room full of people, the people are going to absorb the sound. It's not going to be as reverberant and bouncy. So that actually helps. However, people also talk and make noise. So sometimes there's a lot of crowd noise at clubs and that can actually make life a lot harder for the band and for the sound engineer. Also, there's the fact that when there are a bunch of people there, a lot of bands get excited and you start playing louder. There's a whole thing where I've heard sound engineers joke about watching the amps, you know, when a band is on stage and they just slowly turn their volume up over the course of the night and a band will start at one volume and they'll end their set at a much higher volume just because everything has gotten more exciting and the band in their excitement has turned up. So really good bands know what volume they need to be. They know how to control their onstage mix. And the most experienced bands don't let that happen. They don't do the thing where it's like, oh, we're gonna, it's going to sound so much better if we're just a little louder. We're going to really rock these people. Instead, they play at a consistent level throughout the night. Maybe they get a little bit louder, but they're pretty consistent. And it's all about having good musical arrangements, playing really tightly together. The volume doesn't really make the music exciting. It's exciting music played well. You know, that's what makes the music exciting. So it's partly the band. It's partly the sound engineer. It's partly the room. It could be something peculiar to the night. There are a lot of things that potentially contribute to a bad sounding show. But I agree that way too many shows just sound bad. And I think that's not okay. Like, I, it's too bad that so many people treat that as acceptable. Just professionals who are putting on shows treat it as okay that the show just kind of sounds terrible and nobody can understand what the singer is saying or hear what's going on. I don't really have any solutions in mind. I mean, some of it's just a problem of scale. A lot of people want to go see a band. The band needs to play in a big space. The big spaces don't have as good sound as the small spaces. It's become kind of normalized that big shows are just loud and they just sort of sound that way. So I don't know any solutions. I'm also not a sound engineer. Like, I don't do live sound for shows. I'm coming to this from the perspective of a musician and frequent audience member. And of course, I know a lot of sound engineers. But if anybody listening to this is a sound engineer, you do a lot of live shows and you have thoughts on this subject, like why don't more shows sound good, I'd actually love to hear from you. Um, shoot me a note, listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. I think that would be interesting and I would love to hear from you. 
Our last question comes from Sasha, who writes, I was watching Moana with my niece, and the last song, I Am Moana, it just makes me swell with emotion and cry like a baby. It has something to do with the callback to the earlier song in the movie, How Far I'll Go. I'm just wondering if there's anything non-lyrical in these songs that link them and gives them that strong emotional payoff in the end. So first of all, Sasha, I'm with you. This scene wrecks me. This is my favorite part of the movie. It's like one of the two best scenes in the movie, and they're kind of intertwined. Maybe I can tease out how they're intertwined here really quick. So this is Ali'i Cravalho playing Moana. It's a wonderful performance. She's a great singer. And yeah, the thing that you're identifying here, Sasha, is that she's singing the same melody um, during her I Want song, How Far I'll Go, at the beginning as she sings here, I Am Moana, and it kind of brings everything full circle. Before that, though, the ghost of her grandmother shows up and kind of primes the emotional pump. I know a girl from an island. She stands apart from the crowd. She loves the sea and her people. She makes her whole family proud. So the first reprisal is actually Moana's grandmother, who is reprising the song Where You Are, which precedes the song How Far I'll Go. The two songs are kind of connected to one another. And as he demonstrated in Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda is a big fan of songs that connect to one another, sort of like, you know, helpless and then satisfied. So in this case, Where You Are is the song about staying put, being happy with what you have, and How Far I'll Go is about Moana's dreams to go farther. And when that voice starts to whisper, Moana, you've come so far. Moana, listen, do you know who you Who am I? So that's the end of the first reprisal, and now it's time for Moana to tell everyone who she is. Now, this is something that Lin-Manuel Miranda has mastered, and that is the song in which the protagonist lists who they are. This is something Alexander Hamilton does a lot in Hamilton, and it's a really effective trick. It's also something that Usnavi, the protagonist of In the Heights, does a lot as well. So Moana kind of recaps the plot of the movie, and in so doing, fully self-actualizes and realizes who she really is. Who She Really Is combines those two songs, Where You Are and How Far I'll Go. She is both the girl who loves her island and the girl who loves the sea. The great realization she has is that she doesn't have to choose between the two. I am a girl who loves my island and the girl who loves the sea. It calls me. I am the daughter of the village chief. We are descended from voyagers who found their way across the world. They call me. So when she sings that fourth, It Calls Me, that's a call back to the melody that she sings in How Far I'll Go. It's a fifth in How Far I'll Go, and she actually goes from a fourth to a fifth right here. And when she sings They Call Me, it's a fifth. Listen, the first one's a fourth. It calls me. And the second time she sings it, it's a fifth. They call me. It's the first of a lot of little subtle developments that they do, and that interval, be it a fourth or a fifth, that beautiful, perfect interval, is a really dramatic part of the melody to How Far I'll Go. Side note, How Far I'll Go is one of those songs that uses the four chords, one to five to six minor to four, as I discussed in the year one episode on Let It Go from Frozen. See the line where the sky meets the sea, it calls me, and no one knows how far it goes. 
I think that big fifth in the melody is really awesome in this song, and it goes to show that you can write a melody over this chord progression that works and doesn't quite sound like anything else. It's kind of the defining element of the melody for me, so it's really powerful when Moana references it again in this song in a much more triumphant way. They call me one little thing that I only learned when I did this analysis for this episode is that she sings it in E the first time when she sings How Far I'll Go, but when she returns for the reprise, they take it up a half step, so she's singing in F, which means that Ali'i Corvalio is just a little bit higher in her vocal range, which means she's pushing it a little bit more and the whole thing sounds a little bit more dramatic. It's a subtle trick, but it does make it sound more intense when she returns to the melody. The last few bars before that melody comes back in are quite the musical journey. She's singing about her journey, and it's a journey that we went on with her, so it feels like she's telling us the story of our own journey. She returns to the melody she sang at the beginning, but she's arrived at the destination she set out for. She's up a half step, she knows where she needs to go, she knows what she needs to do, and she knows who she is. It rules so hard. It's just good musical storytelling, man, and Disney movies have moments like that, but it's some of the best musical storytelling in any Disney movie. It's why I love Moana. It's this scene and the musical journey to get to this scene. It's a really incredible moment. It's the emotional climax of the whole movie, and it's really moving. It's a beautiful story in a kind of Disney way, but you know what? It's a tough time right now, and I kind of needed some Disney emotions, so this was a fun question to answer, and it made me want to go watch Moana again. So, Sasha, I hope that answered your question, and thanks for giving me an excuse to talk just a little bit more about Moana because I really do love that movie. And that'll do it for this latest Q&A episode. Thank you so much to everyone who sent in a question. And if you would like to send me a question for a future Q&A, send it to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Kirk, K-I-R-K Hamilton, and on Instagram at Kirk underscore Hamilton. Thanks so much to all the thousand plus Patreon backers of Strong Songs. You're making this show possible. And if you would like to know more about how to help me make this ad-free, completely independent, audience-supported show, head on over to patreon.com slash strongsongs. It has not been the easiest week, but making this show is a pleasure and it remains a privilege to make it for all of you. So thanks to all of you for listening. The outro solos on this episode is me on tenor saxophone. This is a solo that I recorded earlier this year. It's a pretty fun chord progression to solo over as it turns out. So stick around for that and I'll be back in two weeks with more strong songs. Strong songs.